From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Finding new ways to fight cancer is the goal of the Melanoma Research Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. And novel cancer therapies like immunotherapy and nanomedicines are showing promise. Five years ago, 2011 is sort of the the watershed year. What we have now learned is we've gotten insights as to how to regulate the body's immune system so it can overcome the ways by which the tumor protects itself. Also on the program point-of-care ultrasound, how using ultrasound in the clinical setting is leading to more accurate bedside assessment of patients. And tips from an expert on how to take care of your skin during the dry winter months. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Skin cancer, Tracy, is the most common form of cancer in the United States. And the deadliest, unfortunately, form of skin cancer is called melanoma. And that's because once melanoma metastasizes or spreads to other parts of the body, the treatment options have historically been pretty limited. The Melanoma Research Laboratory at Mayo Clinic is working to improve survival rates by developing novel treatments for metastatic melanoma. These treatment modalities include immunotherapy, chemotherapy, and nanomedicines. Whatever that is. I'm glad we're going to learn about it. (laughs) As researchers work to understand how the patient's immune system interacts with the tumor. Here to discuss these novel cancer therapies is the director of the Melanoma Research Lab, Dr. Svetomir Markovic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Markovic. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Svetomir. Nice to have you uh, here, and always nice to know when you are seeing one of our our patients, because you're sort of one of the the melanoma gurus. Around here, and historically, uh, melanoma has been easily curable, easy to treat if it's caught early. But once it metastasizes, once it spreads elsewhere, it's been a very difficult problem as long as I can remember. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tom. This is William Osler even defines melanoma as a cancer that gives cancer a bad name, the father of modern medicine. <laughs> and uh. One of the reasons has been is that the malignant melanocyte, the, the cell itself, is extraordinarily evolutionarily resistant to all sorts of noxious stimuli. The cell originates from essentially nerve cell origins, and it involves the skin of the body where it acts as a uh, producer of melanin to protect the skin from ultraviolet radiation. In doing so, the cell is uh, sort of bred to be resistant to various noxious influences like ultraviolet radiation, chemical influences from the skin, and so forth. Thus, when a cell like this becomes malignant, loses its ability to be controlled by the environment for regulated growth, it becomes very difficult to treat. And as, as you well know, over the last 30 years, we've had very little, if anything, until five years ago. I've never heard it explained that way. That's very interesting of why it is so resistant to, to treatment, resistant to so many things. Yes. You know, it has the genetic equivalent of an elephant in a very small package, a lot of genes available to protect itself, and it uses them very efficiently. Well, what's the current standard? You said until five years ago. So wh- until five years ago, what was happening? So basically in, in our field, melanoma, metastatic malignant melanoma, as Dr. Shai said, which is a imminently curable disease when caught very, very early, when it becomes metastatic, it, it is essentially life-ending, unfortunately, with most, for most patients. Uh, up until five years ago, uh, all we really had was treatment that could barely control the pace of growth of this tumor. 
and we've had uh, treatments that unfortunately could only prolong survival in the matter of months, with average survival times being on the order of seven to nine months, depending on which mm-hmm. study. And what I normally, unfortunately, within our practice, as, as Tom, as you know, you know, you would see a patient for Thanksgiving. Odds of seeing that patient again next Thanksgiving would be relatively low. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of work in this field because of that. The other interesting thing about melanoma is it can metastasize anywhere, brain, liver, and it can even go to the bone. And as you know, we've seen it in the bone, and the reason that we have had to operate on it sometimes in the past is because it will grow so much that it compromises the integrity of the bone, and we're worried about a fracture. But the interesting thing about it is when you look at melanoma metastatic to bone, it's black. Yes. Just like the original tumor. Really? It is. Oh. True. I'm looking at the prep for uh, speaking with you. I come across the phrase immunogenic tumor. Is you're, that correct? You're absolutely right. So and melan- what does that mean? Yeah, I know. It's, it's kind of an interesting story. So back, back in the 1880s, Thomas Edison was still working in his shop, and you know Albert Einstein was in his uh, teenage years. Uh, a guy by the name of William Coley uh, was a physician at New York Hospital in New York City who had this uh, ingenious idea to infect a sarcoma, which is a different type of cancer, with bacteria, and, it, and he could demonstrate resolution of the tumor. That idea produced uh, in the late 1880s uh, what, it, what was known at the time Coley's toxin as the first treatment by which the harnessing of the immune system could be narrowed and directed towards the cancer. This is in the days prior to what in the 50s and 60s we would refer to as the dawn of cytotoxic chemotherapy. The problem is with the introduction of cytotoxic chemotherapy, of the drugs that kill cancer, melanoma re- continued to be resistant. And a lot of us that sort of devoted a substantial part of their professional lives to trying to understand and treat this disease had to really start looking at alternative options to the treatment uh, that were not chemotherapy, but that involved immunologic treatments. The tumor is immunogenic because for time in memoriam, we've known that the immune system does recognize the cancer, but it cannot do anything about it. And I would say the last probably 15 years have truly been a renaissance in the field of cancer immunotherapy, specifically in metastatic melanoma management research. So what have you got now, uh, sure. and, and how does it work? Well, I've got a few things. I've yeah. got a few things, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, we said yeah. immunotherapy, chemotherapy, and nanomedicine. nanomedicine. So let's start with immunotherapy. So basically, you know, five years ago, 2011 is sort of the, the watershed year, I think, in our field. I think everything in metastatic melanoma knowledge prior to 2011 is referred to as the Jurassic period. And everything <laughs> since then uh, is really knowledge newly generated and newly incorporated into practice. Fundamentally, what we have now learned is uh, we've gotten insights as to how to regulate the body's immune system so it can overcome uh, the ways by which the tumor protects itself from immunologic destruction in, in sort of very creative ways. Some work that was originally done at the Mayo Clinic uh, about 17 years ago. So immunologic therapy in, in today's setting that has led to average survival times now in the two-year mark relative to seven to nine months is a big step forward, but it's still not curative. So what we're doing right now in the realm of immunotherapy is trying to understand how do the 1,100 regulators of the immune system respond in patients that are treated with immune drug X and how the system, the body responds to that in those that do well versus do poorly and how do we take advantage of that. A lot of work within our group and others in dissecting the environment of the tumor, so the battlefield between the immune system and the cancer. 
Also, the systemic uh, circulation and the blood state of the immune system that in some people lends themselves to more resp- a greater response to immunotherapy, others it does not. And then various uh, sort of moving knobs as to adjust inflammation as ergo immunity to destroy the tumor. So basically, when you talk about immunotherapy, you're, you're saying that the body's immune system does recognize the fact that melanoma shouldn't be there, and it's cancer, and the, the immune system wants to get rid of it, but it can't. So you're jacking up the immune system in a way? Pretty much, Tom. And what's, what's interesting about it is is jacking up alone probably helps you with a tire, but not with the cure of cancer. So what, what we've learned is that the, so if you can imagine, this is a recipe that has about 1,100 ingredients in it. And we're trying to make it taste well for a unique audience, as an analogy. And in doing so, each intervention produces a counter-intervention by the body's immune system, probably and interestingly in a mechanism not all that different than how the placenta protects the baby from the mother's immune system. So a multitude of different regulators protect the fetus from being rejected from the mom's immune system. The melanoma is a live organism and in in many ways a parasite into the body once it becomes metastatic. So it is actively co-opting the regulation of the systemic immune system in a way that allows it to survive. The task for us is to understand how it's doing that, overcome it at the battlefield, and also overcome it throughout the body where the immune cells are being made to fight it. So you have increased the survival for patients with metastatic melanoma from what, seven to nine months to what now? An average of two years. And I can tell you my fellows, you know, those that come to train with us now, are very disappointed when we don't create a complete remission in a patient with metastatic melanoma which six, seven years ago was an impossibility and unheard. It's great to hear that you're making new good progress, and we want to talk more about it, but we need to take a short break. Dr. Spedermer Markovic is a cancer specialist and director of the Mayo Clinic Melanoma Research Lab. We'll be back to talk more with Dr. Markovic in a second. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Dr. Svetomir Markovic. He's a cancer specialist, a melanoma specialist, and director of the Mayo Clinic Melanoma Research Lab. He's been talking to us about novel new therapies, fortunately, that we now have for the treatment of malignant melanoma. So we talked about immunotherapy, uh, Chemotherapy. The world of chemotherapy is always changing, I suppose, when drug companies are involved, correct? Correct. So what's different in chemotherapy? So what's interesting about uh, melanoma, again, coming from from a disease in which nothing has worked for very many years, there has been a a series of almost generational uh, expansion of people that have tried to sort of crack this nut. Uh, And some of them have been immunologists from the immunology background. And others have also been pharmacologists, people that, that have developed in their scientific lives into, into understanding and decoding the human genome and what that means. And so since the uh, development of the Human Genome Project, uh, the sort of our awareness of the multitude and the heterogeneity of the genome uh, that led to the Tumor uh, Genome Atlas as, as to identify mutations unique to various malignancies, one of the early findings in around 2000, 2001 that was published by the uh, Wellcome Fund was that a certain series of genes were necessary for the survival of melanocytes, the normal cells, 
And these genes were extensively hyperactive in the context of malignant melanoma. Are these considered the genes of the patient or the genes of the tumor? These are the genes of the tumor. Okay. These are the genes. Cancer, if you think of cancer as a disease in general, cancer is really a, a, a genetic disorder, a disorder of mutated genes that allows the cancer cell to live in a different way relative to its normal counterpart. But how does it go from me, the patient, having cancer sure. and my genes to the tumor having its own genetics? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what happens really, so the, the question is, what is the intervention uh, that, that takes place? And in malignant melanoma, it is a very simple answer. It's ultraviolet light. Oh. Ultraviolet light takes uh, these cells that are rapidly dividing in the skin whose sole job is to protect the skin from ultraviolet injury. Because it produces pigment. Produces pigment. Yeah, and, and while, that's why you tan when you, you're out in the sun. Exactly right. And what also happens is when you, when you don't tan fast enough, but you burn, the top layers of the skin that protect these cells from extensive ultraviolet damage lose that level of protection. Now the ultraviolet radia, radiation, which serves as a carcinogen, creates mutations, cancer-causing. cancer-causing agent, creates mutations, injury to the DNA of these malignant melanocytes that are sort of fighting to protect the rest of the, of, of the cohorts from ultraviolet radiation and doing so become themselves susceptible. Once these events take place, as they call somatic mutations, uh, take over and the tumor, the cells become not nor- normal, but transform into malignant phenotype. It's those genetic mutations that as of roughly eight years ago, we can now therapeutically target. And that's why you and a lot of other colleagues are not big fans of tanning bags. Nope, we're not. <laughs> because, because tan is damage, yep. uh, just like a burn is damage. Exactly. So there is not a healthy tan. Not really. I hate to say it. Probably the best one is one from a bottle. Mm. Tan from a bottle. <laughs> Spray on. <laughs> that's okay, the so kind to do. Do you have any idea how many different agents, uh, modalities have been tried to treat uh, to treat melanoma over the, the past few decades? Because I, I can remember interferon, all different sorts of chemotherapeutic agents. How many? Do you have, you have any idea? There is, there has never, there has never been a oncologic agent, a, a chemical treatment of cancer that, that is currently or has ever been in clinical practice that has not been used in malignant melanoma. Mm, wow. Give them all a You've try. tried everything. Everything. All uh, right, so now nanomedicines. Yes. What does that mean? So one of the one of the age-long problems in cancer therapy when the cancer is disseminated uh, has been how to deliver the right drug to the right cell all the time. And you can imagine if you have cancer cells, uh, 10 in the lung, 100 in the liver, 5,000 in the leg, 4 in the brain, and you have to deliver a drug that will have to hit all of those, uh, and you can only inject it into the vein, whatever amount of drug you give, only a small fraction goes to those small enclaves of cancer cells, whereas the rest of it bathes the body in a toxic agent. So most of chemotherapy, as chemical treatment of cancer is developed, we are only able to dose based on maximally tolerated dosing. Because so much of the drug, 95 plus percent of it, goes to normal normal organs, and only a little of it actually gets into the tumor. And that's why so many side effects from chemo. Exactly. In many ways, that's that's the, the bane of the chemothera- right. chemical therapy of cancer. So about five six years ago, uh, through a relatively serendipitous uh, set of events in our lab, 
where something that we thought wasn't working, but effectively, in fact, was, but we didn't understand why it was, we came to a realization that we could glue two unique molecules uh, together, uh, and one of which uh, was a virus-like a- a particle uh, that could be loaded with chemical agents, and the other was an immunoglobulin, uh, which is a molecule that could seek out features of cancer and provide a guidance system to that bigger molecule that we've attached to it. So in many ways, we've developed what it looked like five years ago as a smart bomb for cancer. The seeking piece of it was the antibody, which is a normal immunologic product of of life, where the body makes immuno, uh, antibodies to fight infections. So we simply took an antibody that would recognize a cancer and glued onto it uh, a, a, a toxic payload. Wow, so wow. <laughs> toxic payload. I like it. Yeah. And it goes where it needs to go, whether it's the 5,000 cells in the leg yeah. or the four, th- four cells in the brain. Without going to where it's not supposed to go. Theoretically, that's the plan. Uh, we've now made 10 agents like this, 10 nanoparticles for various different malignancies. The first one is in clinical trials now in metastatic melanoma and ovarian, metastatic ovarian cancer. And we're very excited by the early data. It's a phase one, you know, first in human clinical trial. And just yesterday, we submitted our second of a series of 10 uh, agents for the treatment of uh, hematologic malignancies. So uh, th- this is what this is where the word targeted therapy yes, came from? exactly. Okay, so you've got targeted therapy yep. for uh, melanoma. You've also got immunotherapy. Now, I assume the targeted therapy is similar to chemotherapy yep. in that you give it intravenously. Yes. What about immunotherapy? How do you give that? So immunotherapy, right now, the the most, the greatest success has been with intravenous treatments. Again, the idea of uh, sort of overcoming uh, the barriers that the tumor produces by making the host immune system such that it allows the tumor to grow, and we simply disrupt that signal. Uh, there's colleagues of ours in, in Florida uh, are, have discovered a combinatorial regimen with a topical drug applied to a metastatic melanoma that has a component of intratumoral tumoral injection. Uh, some of our colleagues here in radiation oncology have figured out that if you radiate the melanoma, which, by the way, you know, years ago was considered to be a radiation-resistant tumor, but if you give enough of the radiation, not only will it destroy the tumor, but it will generate an immune alert throughout the body to cause these immunologic treatments to work better, we can modulate the immune system in different ways. I would imagine this transfers over to other cancer treatments in coming years. All cancers, all the time. Great work. Dr. Svetomir Markovic, he is cancer specialist, melanoma expert, and director of the Mayo Clinic Melanoma Research Lab. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk about how doctors are using point-of-care ultrasound. And later on in the show, how to take care of that dry, itchy winter skin. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Mmm, what makes holiday meals so delicious? Well, for one thing, salt. Salt, unfortunately, will help absorb fluid, absorb water, and it keeps it in your body. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says sodium can cause issues for people with high blood pressure and heart failure. Where their heart fails to pump adequately to meet the body's demands. So if you then overload the heart with more fluid and more salt, it has a harder time pumping. 
People with kidney disease should watch salt too. So, if you're on a low salt diet, the American Heart Association recommends your daily intake be less than 1,500 milligrams. That's a little less than three fourths of a teaspoon. Regular intake is 2,300 milligrams, or just under one teaspoon. And how do you handle big meals when you don't know how much salt is in the food? Well, if it tastes salty, don't eat too much. And in other news, have you ever lost your voice? You know, it gets all raspy and weak. Well, laryngitis is an inflammation of your voice box or larynx from overuse, irritation, or infection. Inside the larynx are your vocal cords, two folds of mucous membrane covering muscle and cartilage. Now, normally your vocal cords open and close smoothly, but in laryngitis, your vocal cords become inflamed or irritated. As a result, your voice sounds hoarse. In some cases of laryngitis, your voice can become all. Almost undetectable. Now, most of the time, it's temporary, but if it lasts, it could be more serious. But here are some tips you can try at home to help get rid of laryngitis: breathe moist air, use a humidifier, rest your voice as much as possible, drink plenty of fluids. Moisten your throat. Try sucking on lozenges, gargling with salt water, or chewing a piece of gum. Stop drinking alcohol and smoking, and avoid exposure to smoke. Also, avoid clearing your throat, avoid decongestants, and try not to whisper. This puts even more strain on your voice than normal speech does. Hmm. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive, and I'm Tracy McRae. Ultrasound—it's a type of imaging that uses high-frequency sound waves to look at organs and structures inside the body. Things like the heart, the blood vessels, the kidneys, the liver, and, and of course during pregnancy. You probably remember this. Doctors use ultrasound to check up on the fetus. Boy, girl, ten <laughs> fingers, ten toes. Yeah, just to make sure that everything's right on track. Yeah, stuff like that. Traditionally, ultrasound has been used by imaging specialists. Radiologists and cardiologists, but advances in ultrasound equipment, making the equipment smaller and portable, now make it possible for other healthcare providers to use point-of-care ultrasound. That's POCUS, P-O-C-U-S, <laughs> meaning ultrasound can be used right at the bedside or even during a clinical exam. Here to discuss point-of-care ultrasounds or POCUS is internal medicine specialist Dr. Anjali Bagra. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bagra. Thank you, and thanks for having me here, Dr. Barger. Great to see you. Great to have you on the program. Hocus pocus. No, this is the real thing, huh? This is this the really real works. thing. Thank you for、uh, choosing this topic. I think it is so timely. It is being talked about. It's the new trend in modern medicine and how we provide care to our patients. What's the new way in that? In the way that it's being used. So, as you mentioned,、uh, this is being used by the bedside. So, what's new is that the patients are not being sent for imaging, but we are coming to the bedside at the site of the patient and doing these imaging tests to decide or further refine the diagnoses to make. More sophisticated clinical decisions, but also to guide procedures at the bedside. So a lot of care can be pro- provided at the bedside to the patients versus having to send them to different areas. You used to have to send a patient to down to radiology for an ultrasound. Now you've got it right in your office. It's portable,、mm-hmm. right? So tell us,、uh, what can you find? What are you looking for most often? 
So that's a great question because I think it is a very exciting disruptive technology as a lot of us like to call it, but it's very essential to right size it and identify what the correct application and what some of the limitations of this uh, uh, um, imaging modality are. So some indications at the bedside that are very quick and very easy to do is confirming fluid. So fluid around the lungs, fluid around the heart, uh, especially in a very acute or an unstable patient scenario where uh, traditionally stethoscope was our only way to examine the patient. And although it's called stethoscope, in reality it truly is a stethophone because what we are able to do with that is listen to the human body. But what these um, imaging devices now allow us to do is not only look at the structure of the organs, but also function of the organs at the bedside. So in a scenario where a patient is collapsing in the hospital, it can quickly tell us if there is fluid around the heart that's causing it. Do we need to tap that fluid immediately? Is there a lot of fluid around the lungs? Is there air around the lungs, a potentially life-threatening condition called pneumothorax? Okay, pneumothorax meaning? Uh, air around the lungs within the uh, pleural space, which is the space that surrounds the lungs. And then the lungs can collapse if, they get, if you get too much air in there. Absolutely. What about other internal organ problems? If you suspect someone might have gallbladder disease, can sure. you look at the gallbladder? Well, you can look at the gallbladder, but you have to be very careful. Point-of-care ultrasound tends to be a binary decision-maker in most cases. We can use it to sophisticate clinical decision-making, but we don't want to replace the sophisticated diagnostic tests. For example, gallbladder ultrasound, it can help us get a quick look at the ultrasound, but uh, with the ultrasound at the gallbladder, but it does not allow us to do a very comprehensive scan of the gallbladder. So you might have to then, if you suspect gallbladder disease on your exam or by history and then with the ultrasound, then you might send them for a CT scan to confirm that. Absolutely. Or or a formal ultrasound uh, by our radiology colleagues. All right. Bigger machines. Bigger machines uh, with more functionality. How big did an ultrasound used to be and how big is it now? I mean, are you talking shoebox size versus car bat? You know, what what size are you talking about? Yeah, and that's a great question, Tracy. When ultrasound was first discovered, you can imagine a big room full of a huge machine. That's kind of the size of what the machine looked like. And now we are talking cell phone. There are actually transducers that plug into your pocket-sized devices. They could be small iPads or cell phones. So these are really small handheld devices. You hold this in your hand? I round every time on my hospital service with this machine in my hand. That's my electronic stethoscope. You ever turned it around and say, hmm, I wonder if I got any fluid here. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, our patients love it. They get so engaged in their care because for the very first time, they can see what's going on inside their bodies. They can't hear what we are hearing with our stethoscopes. But they get very, very engaged when they see their heart beating, when they see their kidneys, when they can see the stone, when they can see the fluid. And we can monitor daily progress of patients. Another great application at the bedside is actually looking at the inferior vena cava, which is a big vascular structure. It helps us assess the hydration status of patients, which is a very common, very, very common issue that we encounter in outpatient and inpatient settings. And and this is something that comes in so handy, and it helps us counsel our patients. 
I would yeah. imagine you've probably got hundreds. Just hearing you talk about it, there's probably hundreds of examples. But can you tell us, uh, share a story with how this focus helped you with a patient? Yes, absolutely. I have many stories, but one that really um, stands out is um, the case of an 80-year-old lady who was admitted to our hospital service with low sodium levels, and the team had thought that she has high fluid levels, so they were getting ready to tap her belly to pull fluid out. We brought the handheld, uh, handheld ultrasound machine, she actually had no fluid in her belly and her vessels were completely collapsed. So she actually needed more fluid in the in her body versus us pulling fluid out of her body. That immediately changed our plan within two minutes of getting that machine at the bedside. Saved her a poke too, didn't totally. it? Totally. <laughs> An invasive procedure that would not have um, had a high yield at all. Are, th- are there any drawbacks? Now, I know that this is radio frequency, so there's no radiation involved. Uh, are there any potential complications with the use of this little device? Uh, I think there are no uh, technical or uh, um, radiation related complications, but one big factor involved in the learning curve of of point-of-care ultrasound is uh, uh, operator variability, because this is a very operator-dependent test. So we want to make sure and be absolutely confident that people who are using it know uh, how to use it and know exactly what they're looking for. So I think a knowledge gap um, in or a, a learning curve issue can be a big barrier in adoption. Putting POCUS training on your schedule is what you need it, to do, Tom. It, it, I yes. think I'm just going to leave it up to Dr. Bagra. <laughs> it's I'm better in her to. hands than mine. So how many physicians at the clinic have this? So actually, we have been blessed. Uh, there are more and more practices acquiring machines. Our hospital medicine um, has units. We have a new, uh, within our training programs, we have new services that teach our trainees procedures with integration of ultrasound. I run ultrasound rounds for our trainees. So we have uh, quite a handful of uh, equipment floating around our clinic now. Wow, miniaturization at its best. Point of care ultrasound, Dr. Anjali Bagra, internal medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll take a short break. When we come back, tips on how to care for your skin during the harsh winter months. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, for those of us who are living in the northern hemisphere, winter is on its way. It's not on its way. It's already it's here. here. That's at, right. At least in Minnesota. And, of course, that brings in the cold, dry air. And when you're inside and you turn on the furnace dry in there too. The dry air can wreak havoc on our skin, causing dry, itchy hands, face, and even an increase in dandruff during the winter months. So how do you protect your skin against the harsh winter weather? Well, of course, we're going to call Dr. Don Davis, our favorite Mayo Clinic dermatologist, (laughs) to tell us more about it. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Davis. Thanks, Tracy and Tom. It's my pleasure to be here. It is awfully nice to see you. And uh, we're always talking about the skin when we see you. My favorite organ. (laughs) The largest organ in the body. That's right. right. We cover it all. (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, the winter is bad enough, but then it ends up causing havoc with some people's skin. Absolutely. And why? Because when the temperature decreases, the humidity in the air decreases and your body gives off moisture. You breathe moisture off when you talk or 
inhale and exhale and you sweat moisture out when you get overheated or nervous. But a lot of moisture is just evaporated off of your skin surface and we have a large surface area to donate moisture to the environment. But the environment is so dry, we'll never catch up. (laughs) If you have your skin covered, that has to be helpful, doesn't it? Yes. If you cover your skin, there's a barrier between the arid environment and, and your skin surface and so the water evaporates off slower. Uh, Speaking of covering your skin, I know that you are a huge fan of sunscreen. Do you use it in the winter, too, even though the dinner's only a few daylight hours? Thank you for asking. I'm wearing my SPF 30 right now as we speak because it is moisturizing, and my sunscreen particularly is anti-inflammatory, and it's also SPF 30 because let's remember, just because the sun is a little farther away doesn't mean that ultraviolet light isn't reaching the Earth's surface and therefore your skin's surface. So ultraviolet light type B and type A, Uh, B is short wave, A is long wave, and uh, both reach the Earth's surface in the winter, although not as strongly, and UVA can still penetrate through glass. So even if you're cuddled up indoors or driving around in your car, you're still getting ultraviolet light um, exposure. And a lot of commercial lighting also has ultraviolet light. So even when you're indoors, you're still technically outdoors with regards to your skin. Well, and when you're out with the snow, I know lots of times people who go skiing, well, it can burn their eyes or get they get sunburn on their face because it bounces off the snow. That's absolutely correct. So it's a It's a good physics reminder from Mm -hmm. high school that when you're outdoors, ultraviolet light is a light beam and it will um, hit the Earth's surface and then bounce off and reflect. And the reflection is stronger than the direct impact towards the surface. Stronger? Stronger. So if it reflects off of snow or off of water or off of pavement, it intensifies the light, which is how a lot of people can get desperately sunburned while they're skiing, even on cloudy and cold days. Yeah, and uh, it's worth mentioning, uh, the clouds do not prevent a sunburn. Thank you, Tom. That's exactly correct. He's, he listened. He's been such a good listener. <laughs> he knows. So clouds look like they protect us from sunlight, which is visible light, but they don't protect us from ultraviolet light because ultraviolet light is a longer wavelength and it penetrates straight through those clouds and straight towards the earth. All right. So let's just get back to regular lotion, the sunscreen aside. If correct. you are worrying about, for me, it's my hands and my cuticles. Yes. Got to be doing the lotion. So what types of of lotion should sure. you be using or more specifically not using? So the parts of the body that are exposed all the time, like for example, the face, the neck, the upper chest, perhaps of women and the and the hands, they don't get clothed all the time. And so they're constantly donating moisture to the winter environment, which is why they tend to take the biggest hit. And if you work in a profession where you have to wash your hands a lot, then that takes an even bigger hit. So when we look at uh, lotions or ointments, we look at their water content versus oil content. Water will soak into the skin and hydrate the skin for several hours before it evaporates off. Oil will sit on top of the skin and seal it, so that way your uh, body can kind of catch up with itself. It's like a greenhouse effect. So creams are mostly water-based. Lotions are... um, water-based and have more water content than creams, ointments are oil-based. And a lot of lotions, creams, and ointments are a mixture of of both, water and uh, fat-soluble. So the best thing is dependent on your own personal skin. If you seem to be kind of greasy as a person and can make a lot of oil, but yet you're dehydrated, which is an interesting concept for people to grasp. You know, I can make a ton of oil, but actually I'm dry. It's because oil and water are not the same. Then you need more creams or lotions. If you don't make a lot of oil 
and you're now losing water because of the winter environment, then perhaps an ointment or a heavy cream that has ointment and lotion in it is best for you. Personally, I use one that has both water content and oil content, so I get some that moisturizes in and sets into my skin to soak and hydrate my skin and then have a small lipid bilayer on top to act like a greenhouse roof to, roof to keep me humidified for as long as possible. So even when you're buying lotions, creams, etc., you've got to be a label reader. Absolutely. And you can uh, pay attention to the water versus oil content. For example, petroleum jelly. Cheap, available, hypoallergenic. It's the most similarly to, to natural skin. So if you look at the components of natural skin and the components of petroleum jelly, they are very equivalent. It's the most natural thing you can buy for your skin it's essentially vaseline correct and and it essentially is all oil and it all sits on top of the skin which is why it feels so squishy because it doesn't soak in in. but it's a natural greenhouse (laughs) essentially what it does is just put a lid on your skin that allows it to catch up with its own moisturization and humidify itself Right. What about dandruff shampoo? When do do people have increased dandruff in the wintertime? So a lot of people suffer from dandruff year round, especially people who sweat a lot or in the water a lot, like swimmers. Uh, paradoxically, their skin gets irritated and their body makes more oil. You have a lot of oil glands on your face and on your scalp. And when the scalp gets irritated or dry, its natural reaction is to put the oil glands on the scalp on overdrive. So it makes excess oil. And that can lead to dandruff, which is kind of the waxy, yellow-orange, kind of odorous production. And that's why people traditionally use dandruff shampoos. But the other reason to use dandruff shampoos is because you simply get dandruff from dry skin, which is where you get dry skin like it looks on your body. But if you extrapolate that to your scalp, that's why you have white flakes. It's no different. It's just dry skin. And if your scalp, once again, tries to compensate for that by making extra oil, sometimes all it does is put gunk on the top of your head and make you inflamed and itchy, and it doesn't really moisturize. So a lot of people in the winter use dandruff shampoos for the moisturization component and not necessarily to get rid of oil. And what should you look for when it comes to a dandruff shampoo? So over-the-counter dandruff shampoos contain two active ingredients. One is pyrothyrone, and the other one is selenium sulfide. Both of those are very effective. You can look for moisturizing uh, shampoos that are marketed for sensitive skin or labeled as hydrating or moisturizing or labeled for dry skin. And the most important part about using a shampoo is to remember, when you're using a medicated shampoo, even if it's over-the-counter, for a purpose that's medicinal, like hydration. Most people just use a shampoo at the end of the shower or bath. They wash it into their hair, not their scalp. It's on 10 seconds and they rinse it out because the goal is to get the hair that was dirty clean. But with regards to moisturizing for dandruff, whether it be for oil production or to hydrate, you have to remember that these things need to sit on your head for a good 10 minutes. So what you should do is rinse your hair first, put it on at the beginning of your bath or shower, Not just get it into your hair, but use your fingertips and rub it into your scalp like you're at the salon and they're doing the salon shampoo. Sit that in your head for the entire time you're in the bath or shower and then let it be the last thing that you rinse out. And you should feel, I don't want to say a residue, but you should feel like part of it was left behind because the active ingredients in the lotion should be sticking to your scalp and doing their job. Well, every time she comes, I learn something. (laughs) No wonder I can't get rid of my dandruff. I've been doing it wrong. Do you have any other recommendations for how to have better skin in the winter? Yes. Use gloves, scarves, hats. Don't forget sunglasses. A lot of people get sunburns on their eyes and around their eye skin. Um, And thank you for mentioning the reflective um, nature of snow. 
know because a lot of times we see this problem with skiing. So it's very important that you use a ski mask that has ultraviolet light sunshades over it for your face. I just interviewed an eye doctor. They just kind of come together. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Probably not going to snow this year anyway. No, no. I hope not. <laughs> Winter skin care. Dermatologist Dr. Don Davis, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.